Hello and welcome back to the program. My name is Michael Finney. Today I am joined by T.R. Hudson. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm T.R. Hudson. I'm a writer. Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, uh, you know, let's get into some of your background as a writer. Tell us how you came into it and what you're trying to do with sure. the word. Um, I mean, I've been kind of writing short stories for, for a few years now. I came to Twitter, oh, I think it was 2021, maybe. That sounds about right. Uh, a couple of years ago, anyway. And I heard uh, Zero HP Lovecraft on a podcast, much like this one. And he was describing his process and how uh, he became a writer, let's say, uh, if one can become one, like if there's a sort of uh, transformation to to who you are uh, when you declare yourself a writer, uh, he he became a writer when he heard that uh, Murakami was at a baseball game and decided ah, I could probably write stories, and then he started putting his stuff out there. So, uh, in in a long roundabout way, uh, Murakami going to a baseball game is the reason why I put my writing online and why i kind of found a pseudonym and and a avatar and all this and i do the whole twitter thing had you considered yourself a creative in advance of writing not not particularly actually uh i was you know my, my younger brother he's he's very creative uh he's very artistic and i thought okay that's what a creative is i'm kind of I'm not that. Uh, I started writing in college because I had to take a couple courses and, and people were like, oh, this stuff's pretty good. You should, you know, post this somewhere. And uh, I never did. I sat on a lot of my work for a while and then uh, ended up getting the courage to start a Substack and put my work out there and, and uh, annoy people into reading them, which uh, people have been very generous with their time and their thoughts. Uh, when it comes to my writing. What do you consider to be maybe the scaffolding or background for the work that you're doing? Hmm, the scaffolding or the background? I mean, you know, life experience, to, to, to not get too deep into that uh, in terms of, uh, you know, who, who I am in, in real life. Uh, I definitely take a lot of inspiration from events from my life whether it's uh a few tragedies and tragic deaths uh that have occurred within my life uh family friends the like as and i mean most people have the these these kinds of things not to to say that they aren't tragic but they are common and that's that almost increases the the tragedy uh in a lot of ways but i also i uh it's funny we were talking before uh, the show a little bit and you said that you don't read a lot and I joke that I don't either but uh, I actually do read quite a bit and probably the scaffolding of my writing is just cribbing and, and stealing from better writers than myself fair and in, in all honesty I do read quite a bit um, this year particularly I've been doing a lot more writing but in the past you know have been ripping through some stuff i have collections of the books that i read um up on youtube if you're ever interested in looking at some of that stuff 
No, I definitely am. I the, the one thing that I like more than reading books is talking about books. Um, makes me feel smart. <laughs> well, let's talk about that. <laughs> uh, you know, whether or not uh, we're all moons in that conversation. Uh, tell us some of your favorites, if you like. Uh, some of my favorites. Let's see. Uh, have you ever read Matterhorn by Carl Marlantes? I haven't. It's a book about the Vietnam War. Uh, he was uh, he was an officer in Vietnam, and then he wrote his memoir, basically a fictionalized memoir, like thirty years later. So that's a fantastic book. Uh, let's see. I like uh, The Quiet American by Graham Greene. Uh, which is also set in Vietnam before the war. Uh, uh, the Road by Cormac McCarthy. Very good book. But basically all of McCarthy's work, uh, I'm a big fan of. Uh, I mean, I could just list off, you know, reams and reams of names. Have, have you ever read anything by Tobias Wolf? I don't think so. The name isn't familiar. Yeah, so he's got it. He's got a few different books, uh, old school, probably being his most famous. Uh, it's about like an all boys prep school. Uh, and they meet various writers cause they have like a relationship with, uh, with various famous writers of the time. And they have to speak to these prep school boys. It's a, it's a pretty good book. I think it, I think it was shortlisted for the Booker prize a few years ago. And then probably my favorite book is uh, Stoner by John Williams. Yeah, that one's come up in the group chat a little bit. Is there? Yeah, I mean, I'm. I, oh, go ahead. I've, I'm probably the one. I'm probably the one that was bringing it up. It's. It's. Uh, I. Th- I think it. Yeah, and I'm not the only one who says this, by the way. So when I say this, you know, uh, take my opinion with a grain of salt. But there are a lot of people who think it is a perfect novel, and they use the word perfect. Um, you know, deliberately and, and not flippantly. Which they shouldn't, you know, words yeah. are powerful things. Are there themes inside of the books that you like that draw you in or captivate you, make you think uh, that a piece is elevated amongst the collection? Certain themes, no, I, it's funny. I started reading Aristotle's Poetics. Uh, I've, I haven't gotten very deep into it, but one of, the, one of the things that I take away from it is this idea of theme. And there, I, I can't say that there's a specific theme that resonates with me or that I take a lot from, but if it's, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll crib Hemingway. And if it's good and true and beautiful, then I like it. So when you started writing and getting into that aspect of the craft, what were you trying to do? I was trying to exercise some demons that I had. Uh, my first book, Automaton, uh, when it, there's a few characters in the book that are uh, too familiar to myself. Uh, and I was trying to make sense of uh life in a lot of certain ways uh one of the things i can't write nonfiction, so if i tried to like do a memoir or something of my life i couldn't do it uh one i don't find myself all that interesting uh i find making things up a little bit more interesting but there's 
some truths that you can't get to by relaying facts as they as they actually happened or as you perceive them to happen if you kind of go down the postmodern route um only only fiction can can kind of bring about certain truths about life and about existence itself uh except scripture actually but uh i don't want to i don't want to kick that hornet's nest that's all right we're uh we're friends here we're allowed to go wherever we like uh no i it's i do want to i have a i good i used to have a problem with people kind of uh throwing throwing their belief in my face and, and drowning drowning people in their belief uh and i i try to be conscious of of doing that myself now that i have found god but while also not denying him so it's a it's a little uh it's a little difficult to to cross that beam yeah no sweat i want to round back to the piece you were uh talking about a little bit in regards to fiction and nonfiction and truth and biography, right? And the idea that the creative act is, is oftentimes autobiographical. And even though you were writing fiction, you are writing fiction, you initially utilize that as an aspect to exercise your demons that way. And even if, um, even if you don't necessarily feel that nonfiction in the biographical sense is a fitting trajectory for you, you're still exploring that, that aspect through your writing, right? Oh, most definitely. Like, okay. So here, here's an example. I have a short story about a widower at a funeral who has Alzheimer's and he has no idea why he's there. And he's trying to piece it all together uh, by himself without trying to alarm anybody. And, and, you know, little things come back to him until he realizes where he is, what he's doing, and then he loses it again. I mean, that's, that's based off of something that I witnessed in my life, you know, but since I didn't directly experience it, I had to fictionalize the account. And also, in order to give it the appropriate, in order to evoke the emotions that I wanted evoked by the reader, in that I had to, I had to twist and change things and make certain dialogue fit here and there, and uh, in order to get the response that I'm, I'm kind of looking for from the reader. So these things happened, sure, but not the way that I put them out there. Well, let's let's dive into that because even when we do write biographically or autobiographically, you know, it is just our perspective. And as soon as somebody else reads that, you know, they're going to recount their perception on it, which may be vastly different than our own. Right. Right. I guess. I guess the reason that I stay away from from nonfiction writing, and and to be fair, I mean like Joan Didion, uh, and and New Journalism and and all that in the '60s and '70s, 
it kind of blurred the lines and, and Norman Mailer actually to, to an earlier and uh, probably to a, to a different extent. They, there's a lot of blurring of the lines of uh, fiction and nonfiction in the 20th century. And I don't think that we've kind of, uh, I, I, I don't see us doing anything with that these days. You know, it's just kind of, it's there now. And nobody's in the 21st century, at least I haven't seen uh, anyone kind of build off of that. But I like the idea that at any moment somebody can kick down the door and it can be a dinosaur or something. You know what I mean? Like, like just something completely out of left field that can't really happen in, uh, in nonfiction work, because of course that didn't actually happen. Um, and I usually try to keep my stories pretty grounded, but with the idea kind of like, like this sort of Damocles over my head of anything can happen next. Uh, whereas, you know, nonfiction, there's, there's more rules, I feel like, and I, I just don't like them. Yeah, that's all fair. I think maybe some of what you're getting at in regards to the, the postmodern aspect is in opposition to straight reporting, right? And that's a point that I try to delineate, you know, what is reporting and what is journalism? Um, to me, they are not the same thing. I don't want to, I don't want to give the title of journalist to somebody that I think is just a reporter. And at the same time, I don't want to undermine the, art of journalism by calling it merely reporting. I think that they're, they're vastly different. And that's, I mean, that's something that we could, we probably disagree on. I think that there is very, I think journalism is like, like to call journalism an art is like saying that a civil war surgeon is an artist, especially the way that journalism is done today. Uh, I would rather there just be reporters uh, because it is dealing with something that is true or at least is trying to uh, understand. It's trying to report what is perceived of as true, whereas journalism might as well just be another word for propaganda. And maybe it's because I can't write propaganda very well, but I, I find it distasteful. So, yeah, I, I think that there is at least nominally some disconnect between our ideas there in the sense that to me, journalism is, is long form, mm. right? That we have photojournalism um, or video journalism in the, in the documentary right. sense, right? Um, th that to me requires very long arcs and not necessarily that there needs to be strong narrative. Um, you know, maybe it benefits from that. Maybe it doesn't, you know, that's on case by case basis, but in the sense that when we're just in a moment, right. And we've captured a, a, a short view of something. If you are a, you know, a reporting photographer and you just go to the scene and you get a couple of photos 
and that's put into a periodical or a blog or anything like that. To me, again, that's just reporting and not necessarily giving a longitudinal look at uh, more introspection in regards to the topic, which elevates it to that space of journalism for me. That's how I use the term. So, you know, everybody. Right. And I, I, I get that. I think that, I think that there is a, a time and place maybe for, for that kind of deep dive, but I mean, just most of it is so, so hacky, uh, and, and straight up lies. Um, I mean, hell, like, do you remember uh, Making a Murderer? It was like this big Netflix documentary series. It was like the yeah. first Netflix documentary series. Right. Didn't I didn't watch that, yeah. but I'm familiar with it existing. Yeah, I didn't I didn't really watch it either because I'm not really into like true crime. But. Uh, yeah. You know, over at the Daily Wire, they're doing this sort of. Uh, this is what making a murderer got wrong. And then you have to question, okay, uh, well, what is the stake that the daily wire has in, in trying to debunk this documentary and what is the, the documentary itself trying to show or hide. And it, it never comes to truth. Right. It, right. And the more, if it seems like the more popular something or a, the more popular things in that genre are always going after narrative and spectacle and a message rather than trying to figure out the truth about something. Yeah. I think a lot of what's happening in side of that kind of work is to leave it in this superposition, right? This kind of Schrodinger cat, uh, scenario where it's like, okay, well, you know, from my point of view, it's this thing. Well, from my point of view, it's this thing. And it's really kind of like, you know, where did you come to it from? And again, that's less, less valuable to me. Right. Well, and I mean, but let's, let's look at the other side too. Right. Uh, all right. There's that, there's that documentary that uh Menchus Mulbug always talks about uh Adio Africa. Have you ever seen that? I haven't. It's a it's a documentary about uh, th- these Italian journalists are filming Africa in the last days of colonialism and like the first days of of home rule and just how like monstrous that these countries become uh after after the colonists leave and and the order that they brought leaves right that's something that is clearly whether whether it's reflecting reality it will never convince somebody who thinks that colonialism is bad right it's only because they're they're only they the the criticism of it will be that it's only showing the worst that there could they could have been tens of thousands of hours of footage of, you know, uh, children playing in the streets and having a grand old time and then hanging out with grandpa around the fire. And that, that doesn't get put in the movie. They only put in what is, you know, sensational. Uh, I don't, I don't typically believe that for that particular movie, but I also have my opinions about the continent of Africa and, and, and colonialism more generally. It's 
you're when you take a camera and you point it at something the field is always narrowed i guess is what i'm trying to say so to put so to definitely so to absolutely to pass that off as because I, I think the problem is that journalism has has grafted itself onto the truth so to say that, that if, if journalists would stop trying to claim that they're telling the truth i'd probably be more fine with them let's transition into your work again let's talk lightly about automaton because i haven't read it and it's sitting on my nightstand i uh you know obviously i'm gonna read it because i bought the thing but um you know can you give us maybe uh a bird's eye view of what it's about what you're trying to do who it's for that kind of thing without spoiling it for me sure so in automaton you have main character michael connors who is a recruiter uh, in a post-fall United States. He's basically a slaver who is running around collecting people in this sort of post-apocalyptic America, uh, rounding people up to fight in an army by the, or founded by the one sort of state that is kind of coalescing in New York, New Jersey. Uh, Michael is a he's an enhanced person through because he used to be a soldier. He was given uh, a sort of biomedical implant that allows him to turn off his feelings. However, he is wounded in combat uh to the point that he no longer can turn off the uh biomedical uh implant so that he is now in a state of complete unfeeling and it's his adventures through the american wasteland yeah sounds good i uh you know read the description and said i want to read this I appreciate you not going too into depth. Obviously, you know, you don't want to give it away either. The value is in actually reading it. No, definitely not. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you read it or you read the description and thought that was something you wanted to read. Uh, Cause I'm, I'm not, I'm learning how to market, but I didn't know how to market then. I didn't know what, how to entice people into actually reading this stuff. And, uh, luckily I've had a few good friends who've, uh, who've read it and reviewed it and, uh, said very kind things about it. Let's transition to your newest book. You just released it last month, the perfect and the wicked, the follow-up, the sequel to automaton they're saying. It, it's, it, it's not, it's, uh, that's, that's a joke between myself and Aristophanes, uh, <laughs> He's because he is he's probably the the biggest automaton fan, uh, which is cool because he's like a huge Twitter person. So when, you know, somebody with like 100,000 followers loves your book, that's that's always uh, one good for business. But also just it's cool that uh, 
that cool people like your stuff. Uh, but he's been he's been clamoring for the sequel for a while, and I was working on the sequel, and I got bored and kind of pissed at it, and I didn't want to work anymore because I felt obligated. Uh, so I started writing this, and it's uh, basically a fictionalized biography of the Kennedy patriarch, uh, Joseph P. Kennedy, uh, his rise and fall, as well as the rise and fall of his children in the 20th century. So where did you get interested in that topically and choose to write about it? Uh, I mean, I've always been, I'm I'm a huge conspiracy guy. I and I I don't know, I don't know. Maybe it's my love of narratives and and making things fit exactly perfectly uh, that make conspiracy theories attractive to me because, you know, um, real life isn't as, as clean as a good conspiracy theory can be. Uh, and, and most of the time, I think that there's at least some truth to them. Uh, so the Kennedy assassination was, was always, has always kind of been in the back of my mind as something that I wanted to write about. Um, and as I've kind of, as I started researching more and more, I, I realized that, Oh, the, the, you know, John F. Kennedy, he's not, the the star of this show he's he's not the most interesting person but his father certainly is his father is like the the american faust in a lot of ways uh he he makes so many deals with the devil to get his ends met only for disaster to befall not only himself not only his children but his children's children and his grandchildren's children and like just the, the whole Kennedy curse uh, is is fascinating to me, uh, and then you couple that with you know the idea of you know Catholics uh, running America right now. That's pretty topical with not only Joe Biden, who is nominally Catholic uh, in the White House, but uh, Bobby Kennedy Jr. is running for president. And I don't know how Catholic he is either, but he's a he's a friggin' Kennedy, so that's always interesting, at least. So you got two books under your belt. You're a short story writer. Uh, anything else inside of that personal space that you have that we should know about? Yeah, I I am one third of the Double Dealer, which is a literary magazine revived. Uh, it was a, a 1920s literary magazine from the South. Uh, myself and J.L. Mackey and PCM Christ have revived it. And we just released issue 10 uh, with stories featured from myself, uh, from Mr. Paul Fahrenheit, uh, Caleb Caudill, who wrote The Neighbor and is probably one of the best uh, novels of our sphere. Uh, Brad Kelly wrote for us as well uh, from the Art of Darkness podcast. Uh, Shimmy's Art, who not only does he do the cover art, for our magazines, but he actually wrote a story and a, a damn good one uh, in in this most recent issue, and and a few other people uh, have have written for us, and we're taking submissions for issue eleven. Uh, so please follow us, uh, follow the Double Dealer on Twitter uh, to get information about how to submit, when to submit, and uh, we we do pay our writers and artists 
we're that's that's the one thing that we're trying to do. We're trying to get it uh, monetarily viable so that we can pay all the writers and artists that submit to us. Uh, we don't we the editorial staff don't really yeah actually not even really we don't take any money from this. Uh, maybe maybe down the line if we get famous and it gets uh, more wider readership we might give ourselves a couple bucks but for now we're definitely not taking any money out of it uh so yeah read the double dealer uh my the the short story that i submitted to to uh and this is a little inside baseball for your listeners uh michael you and i are in a group chat with a particular mr mazer rackham jr and he and i have been cross let's say and we had a short story contest. I think I blew his story out of the water. Uh, the judges didn't think so. It turned out to be a tie. But that story is in uh, Double Dealer 10. So if you like that story, or you're interested in sort of a Kafkaesque nightmare in New York City, uh, purchase Double Dealer 10. I'm going to say a couple of things here. Uh, you know, I read both of the stories. I was unhappy with the unresolved nature of the the judging. I would have liked for them to declare uh, a clear winner uh, inside of that, not only for the the consequences, but just in general. You know, there were things that I liked about both stories, uh, and. And I even said this in the group chat in regards to the the technical writing craft. You know, I think I think Mazer really killed that. But in regards to storytelling and something that that captivated me in terms of reading it as a as a reader, as somebody, you know, who is appreciating fiction more and more over the last handful of years, you know, your story gets at a lot of the things that I like. And it is in that, that kind of uh, Philip K. Dick territory to me, you know, maybe you don't see it that way, but I do. Right. And I mean, like the, the whole reason that I did that and antagonized Mazer as much as I did is because he's in a writer's group chat and he didn't seem to be producing anything. So I was, I was sort of bullying him into producing something and he produced something great. It's it's legitimately a very good story, uh, and I annoyed that out of him. So, I, either way, I knew when I, I went into this because I I declared the, the duel, let's say, and when I went into this thinking, either way, I come out on top. Either I just wipe the floor with him and I show how great I am, which I like because I have a big ego, or I annoy this guy into meeting me at my level, which I think is a very high level, but you know, whatever. Um, and, and getting out of him something pretty good, which, which he, he, he met the challenge. So either way I won. Right. And I think that, you know, for somebody who's only been in that chat for maybe six months or so to me, um, you know, I'm not a strong fiction writer um, to explore the craft and be able to, to bounce around, you know, themes and concepts and just the, the technicalities. And then also, 
reading recommendations is highly valuable to me as well. So, you know, I don't know the, the deep lore between you guys, the, the two of you, but at the same time, it is something that I take note of, you know, there is an eclectic mix of, of creatives within that chat. And to me, I think that, you know, it is valuable to prod the folks into production, you know, whether it is with a carrot or a stick. I think, you know, Mazer is specifically, you know, video oriented and for him to get into the written word more than that sphere, you know, as a, as a, as a fictional teller, uh, as opposed to an observer who is exploring other people's works. And, you know, I don't know everything that he's done. I have watched, I think all of the videos or if not all of them, the majority of the videos on his YouTube channel, he does a great job. There's, I think a lot of value in participating in groups like that, whether it is, um, you know, in a rolling kind of text chat kind of way, or even just verbal group chats, you know, which I'm an advocate for. So it's helped me because, you know, initially when I joined the, the group, it was, it was really about the, the technical craft aspect, but I have, finished a story and I'm a slow writer, you know, I write a lot of other stuff, but in terms of fiction, um, you know, it is, it is hard for me and to, to be able to, you know, not have a deadline, but at the same time, maybe some sort of, uh, you know, I don't have a good word for it, but just, uh, folks that are interested or compelled to check in in regards to production and stuff like that is useful and and so you know i appreciate that oh i mean it's good to have accountability definitely yeah yeah that's the word i'm looking for some sense of accountability in that way um my so when i was writing uh the perfect and the wicked uh my friend who i do double dealer with uh pcm christ he's he was starting his or he had gotten a start on his novel before I did. And I said, okay, uh, let's have drafts done by 4th of July, let's say, because we both wanted to get our stuff out by fall. And I did, I missed that deadline. He definitely missed that deadline. Uh, And he's, he's still working on his first draft, but it was even the idea of an arbitrary deadline and even just setting yourself an arbitrary deadline to have something done, even if it's not good, even if it's not done, uh, giving yourself a timeline to get it done really does. At least for me, it it helps get the creative juices flowing. Um, the pressure of having a timeline of having a release date in mind, uh, helps me kind of focus. Because otherwise, I'd just be sitting on my laptop, scrolling on my phone, and you know, just goofing off, and then never getting any writing done. Which, to be fair, I mean, I do most of the time. Uh, that's the one thing I haven't learned yet: is a writer's discipline to write every single day and treat it like a job. 
Right. Yeah, that's that's tough. What have you learned about being a publisher that you might be able to share? Oh, uh, that's I've learned a lot about marketing from Dan Baldick and Billy Pratt, uh, who both wrote books uh, for Terror House Press, uh, who is their publisher, but they have to kind of do their own marketing. And if you've seen Dan Baltic's tweets, uh, they're usually him uh, degrading one of his junior associates because he's a lawyer, right? Or telling people about his book Nutcranker uh, in in various ways, uh, usually through sexual innuendo. And Billy Pratt does much the same with his book Welcome to Hell. He'll he'll just pull a headline. Right. Uh, it's some some egregious thing, like some some horrible uh, thing that you never picture a human doing. Uh, and then just right under, he just says, well, now and then post a link for his book. And that's that's done very well for him as well. Uh, I haven't really been able to meme my books yet, but once I do, I think uh, I'll be unstoppable. Are there any other points? Oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I mean, editing editing is tough. Um, there's a lot of mistakes in Automaton. I think there are fewer mistakes in The Perfect and the Wicked. Um, but even just like, you know, even just building a book out of a manuscript. It, I won't say it's tough. But it was it, there was a learning curve to it. Um, I publish I self publish on Amazon, and they don't really do you a whole lot of favors uh, in terms of uh, making sure that what you want on the page comes out the way you want it. Uh, it's, there's a lot of trial and error there. Uh, but once once you kind of figure it out and to to people who maybe not don't have that kind of time or might not be as detail oriented and yeah i say this completely as somebody who is not at all detail oriented i had uh in the first draft of of this novel i had three different names for one of the characters because i kept bouncing back and forth and i had to go back and, and fix it and I, right before i uh published i i missed one uh, so that was, that was a little embarrassing because I'd already sent out the manuscript for people to read and blurb it. Uh, so yeah, uh, you, if you're going to self-publish, you have to be pretty detail oriented or at least make yourself be, even if you're not normally. Absolutely. Uh, the value of KDP is the ability to drop in a, a new version as well. And to, if you do that with the ebook side, you know, I think people get that new update. If you do it with the paperback, then, you know, they have limited editions, I suppose, in a sense. Um, yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, so, so there are a few, there are a handful of people out there who have a limited edition automaton where the, uh, the, the margins don't make any sense. And there's a lot of spelling mistakes. Uh, 
a friend of friend of mine. Well, I mean, kind of a friend. I haven't really talked to him in a while, but he helped me out a lot with the automaton. So he's my friend. Rogue Scholar Press did the formatting for automaton that you see now in the six by nine, and uh, really appreciative of him doing that because uh, he certainly didn't have to. Uh, and actually, it was uh, Zero HP Lovecraft who was the mediator for us there. Uh, so very kind of both of them. And and that's, that's the thing, too. Um, it's writing, writing is hard, and it's easier when you have friends. Um, but so on the one hand, having a lot of friends uh, in the sphere is good, and being in group chats with other writers is, is very helpful uh, to get eyes on your work, to get uh, ideas, bounce ideas off of people, and also just help broadcast your message out there. But then there's the flip side as well. There's this sort of culture of of glad-handing, of not wanting to rock the boat if you think something is crap. Um, because, you know, you might, you might offend somebody, uh, which, you know, I mean, just kind of because of the times we live in, it's people take offense easily. Uh, but I also don't think that, uh, people know how to give good criticism either. Uh, so it'll almost always come off it personally. Right. Uh, so there's, there's, there's a weird there's there's a weird bridge that we're going to have to cross as self-published writers to uh filter out some crap uh and and put out a more superior version because i mean we're some of uh, some of the books that i've read from frog twitter let's say or whatever you want to call it are much better than what's being put out by New York Times bestseller lists and the big five publishing firms and even some classics I've read. Uh to be completely honest, there's some really good work out there. Definitely. Uh, but a lot of it is not, and a lot of it just feels and reads uh, half assed and half baked. And that's not gonna that's not that's not gonna give us any legitimacy, if that makes any sense. Definitely. I think, you know, for me, one of the, there were two examples that got me or guided me into self-publishing. One of which, you know, was a a business oriented, sales oriented, um, kind of self-help piece from a guy that I know who I've had on the program in the past, but specifically, I think inside of the, the Twitter sphere, um, you know, delicious tacos, finally, some good news is an outstanding work to me. You know, it does what I think is exceptional work in, in terms of storytelling and it's fun. Yeah. And I mean, his, his, his work is, I like, I like delicious tacos. I think uh, I ran a, a writer's workshop maybe maybe a year year ago, year and a half ago at this point, and I used one of his shorts as sort of an, a 
as one of the homework assignments. Uh, it was called The Soap. And I think that Delicious Tacos, uh, what he does well, he does really well. Uh, but I think some of his work kind of is one note. But that's also, you know, like, who that's am I to... There's a, there's a little bit of there's a little bit of uh, you know who the hell are you to to say this about somebody else you know you've sold what I, I've sold three hundred copies of my book he sold thousands uh, and not to say that sales is the the measure of quality that uh, we should be kind of putting ourselves up against but he's been doing this for a while uh, and even if you're not very good. Which, which I'm not saying he is bad or anything, but if you've been doing something for a long time, even if you're not very good, you still know a lot. Right. Uh, There's an important part that you're kind of dialing into, but maybe haven't mentioned uh, specifically here in terms of that long, arduous arc that a writer goes on, where the specific space that he is born out of and where he has gotten to more recently, I would say in the last five years, you know, he was a regular blogger, you know, pushing something, I think, you know, every Sunday for years and years in total obscurity, I would say besides that very niche uh, collective to where now he's kind of, attained some level of cultural purchase, I would say, um, you know, certainly not within the New York times conversation, but I don't think that that's, you know, an establishing line of credibility or anything. Um, you know, and certainly there are lots of, right. And, you know, I don't, arguably, you know, if ever, um, you know, for him, too, as you mentioned, you know, he has sold a lot of books and I think he has to write. I think he, you know, innately needs to express through the written word. Um, but obviously second to that is some level of financial success or notoriety that goes along with being some level of public. And that's, you know, it's that 10 year overnight success quip that I think he embodies um, notably that way. Yeah, I mean, he, he also has a writer's appetite uh, for, for beautiful women. And uh, nothing, I, and I say this as a, as a married man, uh, but there are, there are a lot harder ways to get women to think that you're funny and interesting than, than writing. Usually it involves making millions, if not billions of dollars. Are there any last thoughts or things that you need to express here today that we didn't get to touch on? Uh, no, I mean, I think, I think we, we, we about covered everything. I'd say, I don't know. Go go read the Double Dealer. Uh, you can you can read my books too. That's fine. Um, but Double Dealer is is that thing. I think it's because I'm I'm working with other people on it that I I really want that to be a success. 
my books. I mean, I, I know the measure of my books, but my friends are writing in it and I want them to get uh, more notable in this thing of ours. So yeah, go read The Double Dealer. Well, Hudson, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. I appreciate it. Uh, Thank you.